pulled over by the coppers. He's in a position of authority. Authority, that's what we're talking today. Chapter 6 of the Influence book. See you guys on the other side. Hi, my name's Kyle Macker, and I've been a pilot in the aviation industry for half my life. So you may be asking, why am I doing this marketing thing, right? Well, I'm so passionate about aviation. Flying a big jet, it's just awesome. There's nothing like it. However, I realise that being a pilot is nothing what it used to be, especially during COVID. If I wanted to live the life of my dreams on my terms, I was going to have to teach myself a new skill. So three years ago, I started my marketing journey. I dove deep into the marketing world. I dug into the books, psychology, persuasion, anything that would help with a person saying yes to a product or service. I love it. However, I have a big problem. It's all theoretical knowledge and I have no hands-on experience and I still have so many questions. The biggest thing that I know is if we want our businesses to stand out in a noisy marketplace, we have to become better marketers. The best marketer will always win. So follow me on my journey and hopefully along the way it can help you spark up a few ideas that I've learnt so you can implement in your business. So make sure you subscribe to my channel so you don't miss the latest episodes. And also if there's anything you want to know about, get in touch with me at thismarketingthing.com. So let's get into it. So just imagine the scenario, you're scrolling through a Facebook feed and you see an, see an ad looking for volunteers to, for an experiment to study memory at a local university. And so you think, oh, that would be interesting. I'm interested in psychology and how the brain works. That would be really cool. So you put your application in. You then accept it. You go down to the university. You meet two men. Now, one's a researcher, and you can clearly tell he's a researcher. He's got a white lab coat on, clipboard in his hand. And the other guy's like a normal guy like yourself, and he's another volunteer. And the researcher explains that it's a study of how punishment affects learning and memory. And then he goes on to explain that one participant will be a learner and he's to learn pairs of words in a long list and the pair must be recalled correctly. And the other guy will be the teacher and his job is to test the learner's memory and what he has to do if the learner is wrong, he has to give him an electric shock. Now, these electric shocks increase by 15 volts every time. So then the next thing, you're told that you are the learner and you'll be given the electric shocks. So first of all, you think, oh, geez, I don't know about this. I don't know if I signed up for this. And you sort of think, well, I can't be that bad. It's, it's an experiment at a university. So anyway, so you go along with it and then you're strapped into a chair and as the researcher is tightening the straps, you ask him, uh, does this hurt? And the researcher sort of says, it's not going to kill you. And sort of that raises your eyebrows like, that's not what I want to hear. So the teacher asks you questions to recall the words. And at first it's annoying, but it's tolerable. And then you get up to 75 volts. 90 volts, 120, and you think, holy, this can't keep going on. This is really bad. And it keeps going. You get, Now you're getting stressed and flustered. 150, you're like, oh, this is crazy. 165, you demand to be let out. 
they just keep going. The teacher just keeps shocking you and takes every uh, or unsureness as just the wrong answer. Bang, he shocks you again. By this stage, you're crawling up the wall. You are begging to get out of this seat. You get to 210, 225, 240. Now you're in agonizing pain, but nothing changes. The teacher just continues shocking you with every wrong answer. You beg him to stop, but he just keeps shocking you. About 400 volts now. Keeps pulling that lever to shock you. And you think in confusion, what must this man be like? Why doesn't he help me? Why won't he stop? Now, for the most of us, that is a complete nightmarish scenario, being tied to a chair and electrocuted. But for the most part, it was a real experiment, and it was conducted by a Professor Stanley Milgram, in which participants were in the role of the teacher, so the ones delivering the intense shocks. Now, there was one main aspect of the experiment that wasn't real, and that was the shock. The learner was an actor, and he begged and screamed and pleaded for mercy. Now, the actual purpose of the experiment had nothing to do with punishment at memory. They, the experimenters wanted to answer one question. When it is their job, how much suffering will ordinary people be willing to inflict on a totally innocent person under these circumstances of that nightmare scenario? Now, the results of the experiment were alarming. The typical teacher would dish out as much pain as he could give rather than obey the learner that was screaming and begging them to stop the experiment. Two-thirds of the subject pulled all 30 shock switches. That's up to 450 volts until the researcher just ended the experiment. More alarming, not, a, not any of the subjects demanded the release of the learner at any stage, even though he was screaming and begging them to stop. Now, there was only a small minority at about 300 volts uh, that said they wouldn't continue to shock because the learner said, I am not providing any more answers. Now, the results shocked everybody, Milgram as well, and he asked colleagues, grad students and psychology majors at Yale University where the experiment was conducted to read a copy of the experimental procedures. And he would then ask them, how many subjects did they expect to go all the way to 450 volts? And they all replied with only 1% to 2% would go the whole way. So when it came out that two-thirds of the subjects had pulled all the 30 switches, everyone was completely shocked. So the first thing that they, you know, people thought was that they're all males, therefore males are harder that's the reason. So they redid the experiment with female teachers. Same result. Then they thought, well, the subjects weren't aware of the danger that the learner was in. So they redid the experiment and the learner disclosed that he had heart trouble. And through the experiment, the learner said, my heart's playing up. It's giving me trouble. Please stop. Same result. 65% still carried out through to 450 volts. Then they they thought, well, the people that replied to the ad were a sadistic bunch and didn't align with the average citizens. But when they looked into it, it was just a normal cross-section of society, age, occupations. But to be sure, they did a battery of psychological tests and there was not a hint of psychosis amongst the group. So why? Well, Milgram think he had the answer. 
It's a deep-seated urge to obey authority figures within us all. People couldn't defy the authority figure of the researcher, the boss of the study. Now, he was the real culprit in this study. He would urge them that they needed to perform their duty for the experiment. Now, there's some evidence supporting Milgram's hypothesis. Most people wanted to stop, and without the direction of the researcher, they would have stopped the experiment. They hated what they were doing. There was one researcher, actually, that said a poised, confident businessman come in to be a subject in the study, and he reckons within an hour, he was a complete nervous wreck. He was twisting his hands, burying his head into his hands, muttering, oh, God, let's stop this. And still he obeyed to shock the learner all the way to the end, 450 volts. Secondly, to confirm this hypothesis of obedience of authority, he had the researcher and the victim switch scripts. So the researcher told the teacher to stop, even though the victim or the learner wanted to keep going. 100% of the subjects refused to give another shock. The results were clear. Then again, they mixed it up. And this time, the researcher was trapped to the, strapped to the seat to get the shocks. And the fellow, the, the subject that was initially the learner then was ordering the, the real subject to continue. 100% no one gave any more shocks to the researcher once he said, stop shocking me, that's it. The results were clear. It was the obedience to an authority figure. What the study really highlights is a chilling willingness for adults to go to almost any length to obey an authority figure. You know, this is an extremely powerful motivator for human behavior. So there's probably good reason to it. We, we don't have to look too far in the investigation. If we look at society, society for the most part offers an immense advantage to obey authority. It allows for sophisticated social structures, production, trade, defense. And can you imagine social control without authority? It's impossible. Imagine if there was no authority. Well, there'd be anarchy. Our lives would be brutish and short, you know, as the, as the famous social philosopher Thomas Hobbes told us. So consequently, we're trained at birth that obedience is good. My mum used to say, good boy for doing as you're told, Kyle, and disobedience is wrong. You'll get a smack if you don't do as you're told, Kyle. You know, religious uh, institutes contribute as well. I mean, you don't have to look too far into the Bible, Adam and Eve, that if you disobey you'll lose the paradise. You know, the Old Testament, um, and this in the book he talks about, this is the closest representation of the Milgram experiment, is Abraham was ordered to kill his son. And he was given the order without any explanation from God to do so. Now we know that Abraham didn't carry out and kill his son, but it was a test of obedience. Now I hope this highlights that from children, we are reinforced to obey authority through our teachers, parents, because they generally control the rewards and the, and the punishment. And then when we get to adults, obedience is reinforced by rule of law, government, and military institutions. So I hope you can see how powerful and how obedience and authority is in our, you know, all throughout our lives. Now, stories like Abraham and Milgram's and even society show us so much about the power and value of obedience in our culture. But like everything, there's pros and cons. 
pros, well, we've already established it's an imperative in our culture. We need it. The cons are that, like all weapons of influence, we very rarely analyse the authorities' demands. The brain is just doing its job in a lot of these things, and like authority. It, when new information comes in, it either ignores it, summarises it, and don't send anything up to the neocortex. That's the, the part of the brain that analyses um, information, and it only does it unless it's absolutely necessary. So frequently, obedience takes place when our brain is in automatic pilot, and therefore the information from a recognised authority can provide us a, a valuable shortcut for deciding how to act, even if the authority or authority figure requests make no sense at all. It's just easy for the brain to go along with automatic obedience which is as much a strength as its weakness. Because most of the time, blind, obe blind obedience works just fine. It's like all weapons of influence. It works 99% of the time, but there's always exceptions to the rule because we are reacting rather than thinking. Now, I want to give an example here, and the book, but first, the book sort of breaks the next section of the chapter up into three symbols of authority that reliably trigger our compliance and they require a separate look. So let's look at the first one. And I have two examples here. It's MDs, so medical doctors. So health is important to us all. It's one of the most important things we have. And doctors hold a high level of knowledge and influence in the field of, of health. Now medical establishments have been around for hundreds of years and some are quite prestige and have a label to them. There's various levels of jobs in the medical industry. There's nurses and pharmacists, but at the top sits the MD. Now the MD is the boss of the patients. He's not questioned and probably only ever overruled by another higher ranking doctor. So there's a long established culture of automatic obedience. The nurses just do as the doctor orders. The problem arises then though is if the physician makes an error, will they question it? But what, they found, what they're finding is that subordinates, like nurses, they stop thinking. They just defer. They go into automatic response. There was a study done in the, uh, the 1980s where the U.S. Healthcare of Financing Administration found that there's a 12% daily medication error. Ten years later, it hadn't changed. Harvard also did a study and found that 10% of cardiac arrests in hospitals are due to medication errors. Now, obviously, there's, you know, there's, there's a number of various reasons why uh, there can be an error in doses. But researchers blame the mindless deference to the boss or the doctor. Now, the next story really highlights how nurses are just blindly following the authority figure or the doctor. There was a couple of uh, pharmacology professors and what they were studying was this obedience to authority of, of, uh, of nurses. Now, they came across one case, which was quite funny and quite alarming, actually, where a patient came in with an ear infection in his right ear, and the doctor wanted to administer eardrops into the patient's right ear. But instead of the doctor writing right ear, in short, he just wrote R, ear. So the nurse then proceeded to give the patient three drops of ear infection medication into his anus. Can you imagine being the patient 
and getting three drops of ear infection medication in your ass. Well, that's what happened. Um, but th- then in saying that, the patient went along with it as well. So he obeyed the authority of the doctor as well. But in saying that, maybe he thought, geez, this is some sort of alternative medicine for, a, uh, for my ear infection. <laughs> but um, but the, uh, the second one is probably the scariest experiment I've ever heard of. And uh, in the book, he says that too. Um, and you definitely have to agree with this. But so the same researchers that found, about, found the case about the uh, drops in the anus, they were growing increasingly concerned with the mechanical obedience of nurses. I mean, nurses are highly trained people. It's not, they go to university and, you know, my sister's doing a nursing degree at the moment and she's, she's punching through the study. It's, it's tough. Like, so, I mean, they're not silly people, but there's just a tend to defer to go into that automatic response, as is in the case of the eardrops. But they had a, they then wanted to answer a series of questions um, once they'd found out this information. So the first question was, are these isolated incidents or they widespread? Secondly, they wanted to examine the problem in the context of a serious treatment area. So, error, sorry. Um, so they, they wanted to see a gross overprescription of an unauthorized drug to a hospital patient, see if that would occur. And three, um, they wanted to physically remove the authority figure or the doctor from being there in the flesh and just see you know, if an unfamiliar voice on the phone saying that he was a doctor would suffice. So this was tested on 22 separate nurses. So they, uh, the prescription was transmitted by the phone, so that was a direct violation of the hospital policy. Um, the medication itself was unauthorised, so that was uh, astrogen, um, was not allowed to be used. Now, astrogen must be some serious sort of stuff. Then they, um, the prescribed dosage was dangerously excessive. So the max daily dose for this stuff was 10 milligrams. They were ordered to give 20 um, in one hit. So that would, uh, that's definitely lethal, apparently. And it was given by a man who the nurse had never seen or heard of or met before, but just said he was a doctor. Now, what will blow your mind here is that 95% of nurses put down the phone, went to this dispensary, got the, you know, the, the 20 milligrams of estrogen and walked off to the patient's room to go and give it to him. Uh, that's frightening. And only then were they intercepted halfway to the patient's room by a secret observer where, you know, they said it was an experiment and uh, stop what you're doing, obviously. The study just goes to show that it's way more serious than you know, ear infection, eardrops in the in the ass. It's it's enough for deadly blunders. I mean, and nurses are you know highly trained people, so you know like you wonder how does that actually happen? But it's just it's as we've seen before. Nurses are human before they're nurses. So I mean, it's just the power of the blindly obeying the authority figure and because they err on the side of automatic obedient serves them well most of the time it's just amazing how much it had become an automatic reaction i mean in theory you'd have two professional the nurse and the doctor working together for the best outcome of the patient but in this case one of those absences one of those uh, intelligences were absent 
Now, I really hope that it's not like this anymore. Like, I mean, these were done back in the 80s and 90s. So, I mean, hopefully that uh, that things have changed. I mean, I can't speak for the medical industry, but I can speak for the aviation industry because I'm in it, right? But uh, we had a same sort of problem back you know, back in the 80s and early 90s where there was very steep authority gradients in in flight decks. So the captain was the first and last port of call and you didn't dare uh, question his decision. But that all changed. And I mean, now where, you know, we are encouraged to speak up if you're unsure, it's more of like a team environment. I mean, there's a, there's a captain, there's always going to be a captain and he's the, the last say but he takes all input from everybody, no matter who they are on the flight deck. So, um, you know, I just hope that uh, the medical industry went down the same road as aviation, because if they didn't, that is frightening. Now, the second symbol of authority is, uh, is clothes. Yeah, that's it. Good old clothes. But it's like in the Milgram experiment where the guy, where the researcher, sorry, had the white lab coat on and his clipboard in his hand. It, it added to his authority. Now, Leonard Bickman was a social psychologist and he did a study basically um, dressing a person up in guard clothes, you know, normal security guard, and the other time, half the other times in just normal clothes. And basically he would just ask random people to do random acts. So an example was stand with a paper bag on the other side of the road next to this bus stop. Or he would say to people, that meter's empty, go put a dime in it, go help the guy out. And same same thing, obedience to authority, 42% of the people obeyed when it was normal clothes, 92% with the guard uniform on. Now, there's another type of attire in our culture that uh, adds to an authority, and that's the business suit. So there was another experiment in Texas, and they would dress a guy up, half the time in a business suit and half the time just in normal clothes and he was just ordered to jaywalk and three and a half times more people followed the guy in the business suit than they did with the guy in normal clothes. So it just goes to show how clothes can play a major role in blindly following an authority figure. Now the third and final symbol of authority is uh, trappings. Now what he means is, aside from uniforms, clothing can symbolise more general type of authority. So, finely styled, expensive clothes, shoes, watches, handbags, all that sort of stuff have an aura of, of like status, right? I mean, the Western world, well, I mean, all over the world, really, you see it here too. Um, people have love affairs with cars. And they, uh, they actually did an experiment in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area and they found that people wait significantly longer before honking their horns at luxury cars stopped at green lights than economy models. What they found is motorists had little patience for uh, economy drivers and all honked and two even rammed the rear bumper of their car. But so intimidating was the luxury models that 50% of people just waited patiently before the luxury model moved off the green light. So I guess the question is then, how do we become an authority in our industry and in our business? Well, I think becoming an authority figure in an industry is just takes time. I think that is definitely something that comes over time. But being an authority figure for our customers 
I think we can do that. Now, you know, I think with authority, I think it, and in the, he talks about in the book as well, we, we were swayed a lot more by people who seem to be impartial than, we, than, you know, have something to gain. So, I mean, if you tell a, a person about a shortcoming in your product or service, done correctly, it can be an effective in approving, you know, honesty in your product and that you know your product and them that, you know, there might be something that doesn't quite fit there. But if they know that, then, you know, like they see you as an authority for even bringing it up. They trust you, right? I mean, even the big companies do this, like Listerine, the taste you hate three times a day. Avis do this, like we're number two, but we try harder. L'Oreal also do it. A bit more expensive and worth it. You know, so I mean, they're, they're, they're small shortcomings that they, they just bring up so it instills honesty in the brand. Now, I'm going to go away from the book a little bit here is because I think it, another book does it a little bit better. I've read another book called Flip the Script by Oren Claff. And what he talks is about um, a flash roll. And what a flash roll is is it's about 250 words of intense technical jargon that, you know, basically you raise your eyebrows and go, well, he knows what he's talking about, that guy. And, I mean, he likens the experiment to he took his uh, mountain bike down to the bike shop and the brakes weren't working and some sprocket wasn't, you know, wasn't uh, working either. And, you know, he gets to the bike shop and this bike mechanic comes out and he's covered in tattoos He's got uh, serpents and playing cards all over him, and he, he's, you know, he's got a moustache. He looks like a bit of a hipster, and he goes, "Oh, geez, I, I just don't know if this guy looks like he knows what he's talking about when it comes to bikes." But then the guy comes out and goes, "Oh, look here! You've got a worn control arm at the gear insert point where the guard plate connects to the head sprocket, and you have too much plate pressure, so the trailing edge is is catching." The gear cable, every time the spoke set rotates towards the center hub. And you're like, whoa, stop. And you're like, okay, he's an authority. He knows how to fix my bike. I'll uh, I'll let him, you know, I'll leave it with him and, and be confident that he knows how to fix it. So, and then when he gives you the bill of 500 bucks, you go, well, it's a little bit easier to take because, you know, he's the authority. So, I mean, this can be used in our businesses as well and what he talks about in the book is learning a 250 word sort of you know intense technical jargon sort of thing that you can pull out on a moment's notice and you deliver it like it's nothing to you like that you you know it's um yeah it's just it is what it is I just I I know that because I'm an authority figure you know like I mean and if you were asked about it later on you probably wouldn't uh, remember that you even said it And that will show you as an authority uh, in your business. And I mean, I know a lot of people say that you shouldn't use technical jargon, don't do that. Um, But done right, it it can be extremely beneficial in your business in demonstrating that you're an authority to that person or customer. So anyway, guys, I hope that gives you some ideas about authority and uh, how important it is. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Don't forget to subscribe and I'll catch you guys next episode. Catch you later.
Hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to get a hold of me, I'd love to hear from you at thismarketingthing.com. Until next time, see you later.